Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. 100 years ago, Canada was hardly recognizable to soldiers returning home. As they made their ways back to their families, they came to the conclusions that the things that had to change had not, and that other things that did not have to change in fact did. On top of that, Canada was dealing with an absolutely horrific Spanish flu epidemic. The state of the new Canada was unacceptable and strikes broke out across the country. But it was in Winnipeg, a city of about 170,000 people, that things came undone and a massive general strike was declared in the spring of 1919. To talk about the strike, we reached out to Tom Mitchell, university archivist emeritus at Brandon University and a film producer. He and his colleague Reinhold Kramer published a book entitled When the State Trembled, How A.J. Andrews and the Citizens Committee Broke the Winnipeg General Strike, and it was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2010. We reached Mr. Mitchell at his home in Brandon, Manitoba. Tom Mitchell, welcome to the mic. Good morning and delighted to be here. Tom, I talked very briefly about the post-war context, but I have to ask, why Winnipeg and why Winnipeg in 1919? Well, you've uh, you've touched on part of the reason, and it had to do with the uh, post-war conditions across the country. There were a series of conditions that caused really great suffering among working-class Canadians and Much of this had to do with the cost of living during the war, particularly in the last two years of the war, the cost of living grew dramatically. And for most working people that weren't organized, not part of a particularly, say, a railway running trade union, it was very difficult to get increases in wages. So that was a a primary kind of concern. People were being laid off. The war effort had exhausted itself. The war was over and people were being laid off on top of the spiraling uh, inflation. Yeah. And the war, I think, had also built expectations that post-war society would be different. It wouldn't be a social order in which human beings were valued basically as commodities. Their lives would be uh, much better. And there were commentators, people like J.S. Woodsworth, for example, and and some Eastern Canadians, W.D. Grant, Robert Faulkner at Mm -hmm. the University of Toronto, who who talked about a diseased state in the society, great inequalities of luxury on the one hand and poverty on the other. So there were there were conditions. Now in Winnipeg in particular, Winnipeg was known as Injunction City and the Taft Vail case in Britain in the early nineteen hundreds had allowed businesses that were suffering through a strike to actually sue unions for losses. The British government, the Privy Council, had ruled in this Taft-Fail case and allowed this. The, Privy, the British government solved that for British unions, uh, but in Winnipeg, throughout the early 1900s, the business community, when any, anybody struck, they, they sued them using this Taft-Fail precedent. And the other problem for unions was the criminal code in 1892 eliminated the legal right to picket. So working people in Winnipeg who were suffering through the cost of living, if they did try to strike, they were attacked legally with injunctions that would result in them being sued for damages and as well preventing any picketing. So to sort of make the problem of cost of living even worse was that collective bargaining and striking were almost impossible. And yet they did it. 
The Winnipeg strike was startling in that working people ignored all kinds of legal barriers to going on strike. And not only that, they deprived themselves of income for six weeks, 20 to 30,000 people, essentially. It was a display that is not just collective bargaining, but a display of a protest against what you could describe as an immoral social order. In fact, uh, H.A. Robson, who wrote the Royal Commission report on the strike, essentially said that, that the strikers were prepared to impose suffering on the city by depriving people of basic services and causing harm potentially to people. In fact, he said there's little doubt that people died in Winnipeg during the general strike because of the denial of basic services. But labor did that knowing full well, but they did it because of the, well, they they justified it by saying working class suffering has got to come to people's attention. W.A. McIntosh, who taught at Queen's for many years, was uh, at Brandon College when the strike was on, and he traveled to Winnipeg. He later wrote a uh, commentary, and he said, I'd like to just quote him because I think it's, it's quite revealing. He said, what the strike taught was that a sympathetic strike is possible only where there is a patent and fundamental evil an evil so patent and so fundamental that the community becomes a co-partner in maintaining it. And that was the situation in Winnipeg. You, you had such a stark inequality and an inability of working-class Winnipeggers to actually help themselves because of legal barriers and the ferocious legal assaults on strikes that... Uh, Many of many people said that the general strike wasn't simply an industrial action, it was a protest against what can only be described as an immoral social order. It's a remarkable example of social solidarity. Who were the leaders of this strike, Tom? Now, you know, that's an interesting question. Prior to the strike and during the strike, the strike's opponents, the Citizens Committee, mostly portrayed people like R.B. Russell and a more radical fringe, if I can put it that way, of the labor community. But in fact, the leaders of this strike were really the grassroots. The leadership of the Winnipeg Trades and Labor Council prior to the strike were being pushed and shoved and jostled by people who wanted to be organized. And when the strike was actually called, the extent of the strike far exceeded uh, what the leadership of the Winnipeg Trades and Labor Council expected. In fact, half of the people who joined the strike were not affiliated with a union. They were hoping to unionize, but the, the broad working-class community within the city um, volunteered themselves for the strike, if I, if I can put it that way. That's not to say that there wasn't uh, intimidation of some uh, individuals who may have been members of unions, um, but by and large there was a general recognition both on the part of strikers and non-strikers that the extent of the strike, um, the support for it, was remarkably broad. Let me come back to the leadership thing. Within the community, 
Uh, let me just name some names. Fred Dixon, J.S. Woodsworth, R.B. Russell, uh, James Wining, Ed Robinson. And those names are associated with different currents within the labor community within Winnipeg and within the sort of ideological community within Winnipeg. During the strike, those differences didn't matter. The strike became a focus for, for people on the sort of labor right wing of labor right through to those supporters of the OBU and a more radical socialist current within Winnipeg. The OBU is the one big union. Yeah, the one big union. But let me come back to the Citizens Committee just for a moment. The Citizens Committee that emerged to fight the strike chose to focus its venom on one narrow stream within the labor community. And, and those were the supporters of the Socialist Party of Canada and the OBU. And the, the reason they chose to focus on that particular group was that their language was a more extreme language of labor act if I can put it that way. They had associated themselves with uh, European socialism, with uh, Karl Liebknecht, Rosa Luxemburg, with the Spartacus, with the Russian Revolution. And for the Citizens Committee, this was, uh, this was a target that they could attack and they could smear the strike, as it were, as being essentially a, an incipient revolution, of, uh, an attempt to install a Soviet in Winnipeg. It really was the beginning of the Red Scare, was it not? Yes, they took advantage of that climate. In fact, Robson, in his report, said that it was unfortunate for the strike and for subsequent historians of the strike that the citizens were able to conflate, if you will, the more radical uh, streams of labor thought in Winnipeg at the time. Uh, with what was a broad-based working-class uh, event. Now, let's move into the, the chronology a little bit here. The The strike really begins, I mean, there, there are small strikes um, that are erupting in Winnipeg through April and early May, but the really the big general strike starts on May 15th, 1919, uh, barely 18 months after the Soviet uh, revolution, the, the Leninist revolution in Russia. The general strike will last about five weeks. It'll go until June 21st, 1919, bloody Saturday. Let's talk about these dates. What sustained people through those five weeks? How did the, I mean, keep, keeping a general strike alive is, is an enormous task. How did it, how did it sustain itself for five weeks? Well, you know, initially, I think the, the uh, expectation on both the part of labor and the opponents of the strike was that the strike would not last very long. Uh, the fact that it did last six weeks, I think, in hindsight, people thought this, this was remarkable. The general strike, just the, those two words, um, has, a, has a history in its own in that the labor movement, the European labor movement, and even in, in North America, the, the, the idea of a general strike was mostly ridiculed by serious people. It only really gained traction with the Russian Revolution and the use of the general strike uh, 
to lay conditions for a Bolshevik takeover of, uh, of government in Russia. And so my point here is that nobody had theorized the general strike, so that labor in Winnipeg, once they launched the general strike, had really no idea of what the implications of that were. And, of course, they ran immediately into the problem of providing basic services. So the citizens, of course, claimed babies were dying because they didn't have milk, and they didn't have milk. Mm -hmm. So initially, the city had to sort that out, and the strike committee and a a council, city council, formed a subcommittee to, to kind of deal with those basic things. So there were basic services being offered. There were. And, and of course, the Citizens Committee showed up, and its initial um, sort of effort was to provide uh, firemen for the firemen who were on, on strike and, and keep the, the water treatment plant going where the civic employees had left. This isn't, again, to remind our listeners, the Citizens Committee being those that group that opposed the Winnipeg General Strike. Yeah. So initially, and, and the leading figure in the Citizens Committee, A.J. Andrews, who was communicating with uh, Arthur Meehan, Andrews had been appointed, as it were, Meehan's ears and eyes in Winnipeg. So we have a commentary from Andrews to Meehan throughout the strike, and it's a good avenue into what was going on. You could tell by Andrews correspondence with me and that he expected the strike to collapse of its own weight. But he did not realize that the strikers would have reinforcements very early in the strike that became the real driving force, if you will, of the strike. And that was the returned soldiers led by Roger Bray in particular. Who was this man, Bray? Well, Bray was a, a working-class guy. He had served in, uh, in the war. He had come back to Winnipeg. He was British, and he had a capacity to lead and to speak and uh, to take charge. And, and he became a very important figure within the returned soldiers movement and, of course, uh, was one of the uh, strike leaders arrested on June 17th and subsequently tried for seditious conspiracy. He gave the movement some legitimacy, though, didn't he? Well, the citizens had mounted a campaign through their paper, the Citizen, uh, to try to uh, neutralize the returned soldiers. And their, their, their weapon of choice was to vilify the alien in Winnipeg. They constructed North End Winnipeg, Slavic immigrants, as a kind of other within the strike, and essentially charged the strike and the bad deeds that were happening on the streets of Winnipeg were, were mostly the work of uh, non-British aliens. And, and Winnipeg, of course, had a large community of uh, non-English-speaking immigrants. Many of them uh, supported the strike. Many of them did support radical labor. Now, now tell me about A.J. Andrews, the opposite. This is the man, you've mentioned him already a couple of times. He's the leader of the Citizens Committee. Who is this A.J. Andrews? Within the community, within the, the Winnipeg business community, the legal community uh, was really the sharp end of the anti-labor activists. And uh, not, not to say that Andrews didn't act for labor periodically, but he emerged um, uh, in the strike as the leader of the Citizens Committee of 1,000. It wasn't a committee of 1,000. It was a committee of about 40. And the Committee of 1,000, the use of that name was rhetorical, really. It was designed to, to have a rhetorical effect 
to suggest that it was representative, that it was broadly based. In fact, at the founding meeting of the Citizens Committee, uh, there was a debate. Should we be the citizens of a committee of 100? They tried 300, 500, and finally settled on 1,000. But was he a lawyer, Andrews? He was. He was, he was a criminal lawyer, a corporate lawyer. He did a variety of things. But here again, I just want to dig down a bit. Just as uh, the general strike, the idea of the general strike cannot be taken as a, as a given, as something that wasn't historically distinct in 1919 because of the immediate background of the Russian Revolution and the Spartacus, the overthrow of the uh, German Empire, and so on. Similarly, the Citizens Committee in Winnipeg had a lineage dating back to the development of anti-labor organizations, citizens' alliances in the United States beginning around 1903-1904. And these organizations, they presented themselves to the public as not employers' associations, so they didn't call themselves employers. They called themselves citizens' alliances. And this allowed them to enter the public sphere against labor, and present themselves as representing the public interest. And they all had a secret life. They raised money to, uh, to fight strikes uh, through the courts, to bring in scabs, and in many cases to actually do citizen arrests and prosecutions of strike leaders. So the Citizens Committee of 1000 was actually modeled on these anti-labor organizations uh, formed in the states. And the predecessor, the, the Citizens Committee 1000, actually um, evolved from the Winnipeg Citizens Alliance formed in 1918 and modeled on the Minneapolis Citizens Alliance. Tom, what do you think was the turning point for the Winnipeg general strike? When did things start going bad? Well, there there's two dates, really, that uh, one can kind of focus on. June 10th, uh, when the city had uh, discharged the police force and replaced it with a force of specials. These were uh, untrained, really, uh, men put on the streets to uh, impose order. Special constables. Yeah, and on June 10th, they... They, they appeared on the streets uh, for the first time and tried to clear a crowd uh, uh, at Portage and Maine. And a riot ensued that went on for two or three hours and extended uh, throughout parts of downtown Winnipeg. And the, 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 the specials were actually driven from the street. They were defeated. They, were, they had to be rescued. And from June 10th to June 17th, Labor controlled the streets of Winnipeg. And A.J. Andrews wrote to Meehan on the 10th describing this riot and the, uh, the defeat of the specials and said, it's time to act. So from June 10th, Andrews began to sort out a way of bringing the strike to an end. And he was going to use... Uh, state power to do that. The provincial government of Manitoba was on the sidelines through much of the strike. Which is remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. The mayor of Winnipeg, his role was really undermined by the citizens. They didn't trust Gray. They didn't believe. This is Charles Frederick Gray. Yeah. And the railway running trades, for example, 
had a mediation committee, and they uh, they tried to solve the strike and came up with a proposal uh, that would have recognized a form of collective bargaining that the metal trade, who had in part triggered the general strike, would have accepted. Andrew Scott, Gideon Robertson, the Minister of Labor, to come from Ottawa to Winnipeg and put the kibosh on this mediated settlement because the citizens and the federal government, for that matter, did not want a, uh, a negotiated settlement because they, they viewed that as essentially a labor victory. Now, you mentioned Mayor Gray. He, he really becomes an important figure 11 days later. You mentioned June 10th, but on, on the 21st of June, he reads the Riot Act, doesn't he? He does. But let me just briefly describe June 17th. Okay. June 17th was the day on which, the evening on which, uh, the strike leaders were arrested. And when I say strike leaders, these were uh, a group of men identified by the Citizens Committee to be removed from the streets so that the, uh, the strike would, would collapse. The federal government hadn't authorized these arrests. The Attorney General of Manitoba hadn't approved these arrests. They were arrests essentially taken uh, by Andrews using the Criminal Code and the uh, amended Immigration Act. But the Criminal Code, I suppose, was legitimate because he had, he had an information sworn out by a Northwest Mounted Police constable that he could use to get arrest warrants. The Immigration Act, and I, I hate to, I'm sorry for getting into the weeds on this, but the arrests and prosecution of the strike leaders is a story that um, is, is really important for people to understand because of the legal shenanigans that were involved, the legal non-sequiturs, if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. in that Andrews, I'll just give you an illustration of what I mean. In order to use the Immigration Act to arrest the strike leaders, Andrews had to send to the Minister of Immigration the information about why they wanted to arrest or detain somebody and get the minister's approval. That was never done but these men were arrested using the Immigration Act. They were also arrested using the criminal code, but again, the Canadian government had told the Attorney General of Manitoba, Andrews will not act without your direction. And he didn't have the direction of the Attorney General of Manitoba. So, so was it this action that prompted the 30,000 people to show up uh, on June 21st at Market Square? No, not really, not really. The, uh, the strike committee counseled against the uh, uh, the threatened parade uh, by returned soldiers on the 21st. I think the the reason for Bloody Saturday really was a sense that the strike was ending and that uh, uh, a protest of sorts had to be mounted. And and the the real issue was that the city was putting streetcars back on the road. If they could do that, that would symbolize in a sense, the, the sort of defeat of the strike. It's at that point that Mayor Gray calls in the RCMP, though, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. And um, again, Bloody Saturday, in terms of the, the long history of the strike, is like uh, Donald Trump and, and, <laughs> and the idea of taking peoples away from the real, really important things. Hmm. Uh, the events on June 17th... The arrests. Yeah, and, and the subsequent trial, those events are, from the Citizens Committee 1000's point of view, much less focused on 
uh, not understood nearly as well as they should be, uh, and and the focus tends to be on Bloody Saturday, people writing uh, musicals and doing films and so on. But it was an important event, surely. It was an important event. People but, died. Well, no, the problem again here is that it played into the citizens' narrative. Mm. And the citizens' narrative was that this was uh, an attempt at a violent revolution, that it was right. uh, dominated historical writing of the strike uh, in the post-strike era. It was... Uh, in a sense, um, given credence because the strike leaders were actually found guilty of seditious conspiracy. And it really wasn't until 30 years later uh, with the um, D.C. Masters account of the strike that a more um, fundamental uh, cause of the strike, that is working class suffering, cost of living, these more mundane concerns uh, came to the fore. Um, and and the the citizens' narrative, which is a, a kind of epic, romantic, exciting narrative, well, people people fall for that kind of narrative, and they did for many years. How should we remember the Winnipeg General Strike a hundred years later, Tom Mitchell? Well, I think the Winnipeg General Strike a hundred years later should be uh, remembered as uh, the crisis, essentially the moral crisis of a liberal capitalist social order that had uh, ignored or, or oppressed, if you will, working people within that social order to the point that they mounted not an industrial action. I mean, this is an industrial action. A general strike in this sense can be viewed in those, those limited terms. But I think to really understand what, what's going on here is that there was at the core of Winnipeg society a, a moral uh, failure that uh, caused ordinary, average, working-class people, not revolutionaries, not ideologues, to sustain a strike for six weeks uh, that caused uh, suffering for both working people and non-working people that ended in a riot. They did this essentially as a moral protest of the condition in which they were in. If you read the testimony of people who came before the Robson Commission, these are working men who were embarrassed because they could not provide for their families. Mm -hmm. They had children with no shoes. They had wives that were sick and they couldn't provide medicine. They had they worked seven days a week for 12 hours a day. Uh, it was morally reprehensible. And uh, come back to uh, W.A. McIntosh, where he said, a sympathetic strike is not just on the strikers. It's on the social order that causes a general strike of that kind to happen. So that's, that's really, I think, what what people should think about when they think about the Winnipeg strike. It was a remarkable event in our history. And as you pointed out earlier, it did end on June 25th when the Central Strike Committee officially called the thing off. I want to ask you our, our signature Champlain Society question, Tom. What's the state of documentation uh, on the Winnipeg general strike? Are, are, are historians well served by the documentation that's available? Um, what's your sense of that? Well, from 1919 to 1988, 
The most important records on the strike, in my view, and these were the records involving the Department of Justice in Winnipeg and the Citizens Committee 1000, uh, were suppressed. J.S. Woodsworth had asked for these records. Uh, others had asked for the records in the early 1920s, and they were told they didn't exist because people knew that there was this connection between opponents of the strike and the Attorney General, the acting Attorney General, me, and, and they wanted to they wanted this correspondence and related documentation. This became available through the Freedom of Information Act in 1988. Two uh, pockets, if you will, uh, two boxes, essentially, of records. They include correspondence um, plus um, financial records. The Citizens Committee prosecuted the strike leaders under the criminal code using a provision to allow a private organization or individual carry through a criminal prosecution if they weren't stopped by the Attorney General of the province. And the Citizens Committee did this, and they were paid a quarter of a million dollars. Andrews, Pitblado, Trevor Sweatman, all had a very big payday. Mm. And the money was taken from the Soldiers' Resettlement Fund really? to prosecute the strike leaders. Wonderful. Tom Mitchell, thank you for sharing your thoughts on the strike. Delighted to be here. I was speaking with Tom Mitchell, University Archivist Emeritus at Brandon University in Brandon, Manitoba. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on January 28, 2019, and it was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Music